You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're looking tonight at chapter 1 of Colossians and reading just two verses, 15 and 16. You'll find this on page 983 of the Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, no, 16, and it's on page 983 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Well, having greeted the Colossians, the Apostle Paul then turns our attention to this preeminence of Christ. You might even have seen that heading in your Bible. And the Apostle highlights the person of our blessed and incarnate Redeemer. He is the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature, according to Hebrews 1. And that is an incredible statement. He who sees Jesus, in other words, has seen the Father. Otherwise, the God, the Father, is invisible to us. We can only see the display of his glory. Paul says to Timothy, he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. But in Jesus the Son, God has made himself known, and we see God in Christ. They are one God. As the Catechism teaches, they're the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And Christ also is the firstborn of all creation. Not that he is a mere creature, mind you. Arius argued long ago that this particular verse views Jesus as a creature, a mere creature. He's the firstborn, however, not in terms of chronology, but in terms of preeminence. The firstborn son was the preeminent son of the Hebrew family. And he's the heir of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul goes on then to explain the role of God's son in the creation of the universe. It's unfathomable. The whole created order, both visible and invisible, was created by Jesus. And that means that things seen and things unseen, both in heaven and in earth, were created by the Son. He brought everything into existence, and he sustains the cosmos. Without Christ, this entire creation would be utterly meaningless. Paul says all things were created through him and for him. They were created through him. Through the Son, the eternal Word. If you have ever heard a Gnostic teach his theology, he teaches that matter is evil and spirit is good. Matter is eternal, 
And from this evil, eternal matter, the world was created. In other words, the Gnostic would say, God didn't create this world, it's evil. But Paul insists here, contra the Gnostic teaching, that God did create the world, and his agent in doing so was Jesus the Son. And as all things had their beginning in him, so they have their consummation. And that's the point. Everything depends on Jesus and everything serves Jesus and he upholds the universe and heaven itself was not only created through him but also exists for him. It exists for his glory. Jesus Christ is the telos, the end of everything. He even tells us in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that means implicitly that he's the Lord over the entire cosmos, and to him everything is directed. They're through him as first cause, and they're for him as final end. And the whole reason for the created order is the glory of God in general, and the glory of the Son in particular. That's why we're here. And this includes all three heavens. The lowest heaven where the birds can fly and the middle heaven of sun, moon, and stars and the third heaven where the presence of God is most clearly displayed. And tonight our task is going to be to consider this vital truth, namely the purpose of heaven. As for its nature, you remember it's a place of eternal rest and indescribable joy. And language is inadequate to describe the blessedness of that place. We can't even imagine And it was made on the basis of God's goodness, and it was made for the purpose of his glory. He is everywhere present, that's true, because not even the highest heaven can contain him. Regarding his essence, he's in all places as the infinite and eternal God. But as the Bible indicates, he's present in heaven in a very special way. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And God's throne is glorious. His majesty is most clearly displayed in heaven. And that's where the glory of God's incarnate Son is fully manifested. In his humiliation, you know the verse, he emptied himself of his glory. Its display was totally obscured so that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should ever desire him. He was a homely man. But in his exaltation... He is now fully possessed of unprecedented glory. Nothing has ever been seen like that, not even in heaven itself. And it's where his glory is most clearly and effusively exhibited from now on. As Thomas Manton puts it, when we come by a poor cottage, we guess the inhabitant is no great person. But when we see a magnificent structure, we easily imagine some person of account dwells there. Though the earth and the starry heavens declare his glory, we see it most especially in heaven. It was made through him, and it was made for him. It was created for his glory, and it gives him pleasure. Isn't that marvelous? The exalted Son, the eternal Lord Jesus Christ, takes pleasure in heaven primarily because the glorified saints are there. Everything about heaven will be reason for praise of the glorified Christ. 
Hell was designed, you'll remember, with a view toward the glory of divine justice. That's where his justice will be most clearly displayed. Outside of the cross, that is. Heaven was designed with a view toward the glory of divine grace. And of course, it's far more than that, but that's one of its primary aims. We'll have inexpressible joy in the splendor of all of his glorious attributes. An innumerable company of redeemed will forever praise the glory of his grace. So the purpose of heaven, in particular, as it was of creation in general, is to glorify God. The ultimate end of all things is to serve him and set forth his praise, and that's why God created the universe. Everything he made is for himself. As Solomon tells us in Proverbs 16, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, and its purpose of heaven is to demonstrate all of his infinite perfections, his almighty power, his eternal love, his infinite goodness, his never-ending mercy. And in heaven, these and all of his divine attributes will be wondrously displayed. And we're going to join that chorus of never-ending praise for the glory of his excellency, And Jesus the Son, not only as the agent of creation, but the ultimate goal of it as well, will be the object of our praise. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So that's the purpose. But let me ask this question. Why does heaven or how does heaven glorify God? How is that done? What are the mechanics? What are the logistics Well, I've discovered at least five ways in which heaven glorifies God. First, in heaven, God is highly praised and most fully enjoyed by the glorified saints. Revelation 19 says there's going to be a great multitude that will cry out, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You see, Christ redeemed the church with his own blood, and the marriage arrived. And the wedding song is sung in celebration of the great wedding feast. And so loud is that singing that it's likened in Scripture to a waterfall and thunder. And so robust is the praise that it will resound at the full display of God's heavenly glory. Just as God presented Eve to Adam, he's going to give the church to Christ. What a glorious gift. What a monumental betrothal. A grand realization of the entire purpose, the mystical union of Christ and his bride now fully consummated, and the praise of Christ will rise in crescendo with exuberant thanksgiving. The wedding feast has come. And this will be the perfect and full communion between Jesus and believers. That's when God will be most fully enjoyed by his chosen people. Here we enjoy him immediately through the various appointed means, the word of God, the table, our praises. But there we will enjoy him immediately and fully through the exalted Christ. I can't even explain that. We're told that in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
And then we're going to enjoy not just the raindrops of joy that we have here, but an overwhelming flood of ecstasy. And the great goal of eschatological life will finally be experienced by every saint. And finally, the original purpose of entering God's rest will be fulfilled. And this will magnify his glory and especially the glory of his grace, as we said. We will rejoice with joy unspeakable at the great wonder of what it took to save sinners. How did God rescue guilty, corrupt people from the wrath that we so richly deserved? How did the bridegroom rescue his beloved bride from the punishment that she had earned and warranted? Oh, how we rejoice in the cross. Without restraint, we're going to sing. We're going to join the living creatures and the elders and the myriads of angels singing that song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As Dennis taught us last night, sevenfold teaches us the fullness of praise and blessing, how complete it will be. And Christ's praise will be high and the saint's enjoyment will be full. It will be glorious. So the first way is that God is highly praised and most fully enjoyed by glorified saints. But the second way is that in heaven, the worship of God and the Lamb will be perfected and most relished. You know something? Our worship on earth is always hindered by the world and the flesh and the devil. Isn't that true? Preachers are imperfect. You know that. Hearers are distracted. Circumstances are often adverse. One time we even canceled worship because of a gas leak. Sirens can be heard routinely on the street behind me. Rain pelts the windows. The AC goes out. The speakers don't work. And to top it off, the world scoffs at us. And the flesh resists this. And the devils are at work right now trying to thwart it. Our hearts are often cold, our minds are dull, and our worship is lethargic. And apart from the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing we do here could ever be acceptable in the sight of God. But you know something? In heaven, our worship, it's going to be pure, focused, and without restriction. The four living creatures were told day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are not hindered in the least. Their ongoing worship is pure. And they never cease day and night forever. It's continuous praise. And then we read the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Did you notice? No impediments, no fleshly sins to resist, and such is the worship of the triune God in the upper regions of heaven. It's pure, unhindered, never-ending, and immensely glorifying. And the Lord intended it that way. He's worthy of that kind of worship. And it is in, in and through that worship that we will experience the fullness of joy. That's the second way. The third way is that in heaven, the will of God is performed by the angels and saints with perfection and delight. Isn't that amazing? 
We're taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. That's our duty here and now. We are to obey him in all things perfectly. And God requires of all people personal and perfect conformity to his will. So the standard by which earthly obedience is measured is heavenly obedience. As in heaven, so on earth. The glorified saints and the elect angels are in perfect conformity to God's will. Fallen sinners and condemned devils are never in conformity to his will. Had Adam obeyed and passed the probation, things would have been far different and the human race would not have fallen into this estate of sin and misery. Sadly, we did. We would have been confirmed in holiness and we would have been incapable of disobedience. But Adam's sin plunged the entire human race into a severely cursed existence. So perfect conformity to the will of God in this life is impossible. Impossible. And this is true even of Christians who've been freed from sin's dominion. You know that. Our daily existence is proof of it. We're able to obey God's will, but we're also able to disobey his will. We struggle with the remnants of sin, you and I. Paul speaks of the battle between the flesh and the spirit being a fierce conflict. And if you have not experienced that, that fierce conflict between the flesh and the spirit, I suggest you search your soul. Because he tells us the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. A creature's disobedience is one of the greatest insults to the Almighty. Nowhere is this more evident than in the activity of Satan himself. He hates God. He hates his Christ. He does everything to dishonor them. He tempts man to sin and he strives to stir up the depravity of our nature. And he's pretty successful, by the way. But the new covenant is God's way of vindicating his name being profaned among the nations. He promised, I'll put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that brings glory to his great name. That magnifies God's splendor. And in heaven, the will of God is obeyed perfectly by both angels and saints. That's where his sovereignty is adored and that's where his dominion is acknowledged. Every single person, every single being in heaven fully submits to God's will with the utmost sincerity. Glorified saints obeying with a single eye to the infinite glory of the Lord. Can you imagine an existence like that? Their obedience rises from filial respect and love for the Almighty. And their obedience is universal, every single command. And their obedience is constant, always being done. Never to all eternity will their love grow cold. Never throughout all the future ages will their souls become indifferent. And that's why we're taught to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we obey with the like reverence and humility and zeal and precision and sincerity as the very angels themselves do in heaven. And seeing the universal corruption of man, I think we're all ashamed of the human race.
God's name is so little magnified. Our service and our obedience is so pathetic. But not in heaven. When we get to heaven, the glory of God will be highly magnified and perfectly reflected in our obedience. (laughs) That's the promise. Fourth, heaven is where the people of God are blessed beyond anything we can imagine. That's the fourth way. I heard a voice from heaven, John said, saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. You see, to die in the Lord means to depart this earth in vital union with Jesus. That's what that means. The believer is spiritually and mystically joined to Christ and yet truly and really joined to Christ. And as part of Christ's body, we can't go anywhere but where Christ is. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what the voice was saying is that at death, believers go to heaven. I was just asked this morning at the door, when we die, where does our soul go? Heaven. That's why those who die in the Lord are blessed. God crowns the believer with blessing and bestows on the believer his reward. And as soon as the soul enters heaven, it begins to live fully and gloriously. We see through a glass dimly right now. When you get to heaven, it'll be glorious. It was the reason why Paul was so desirous of departing and being with Christ. There's not only a stop to our sin and misery, but there's the enjoyment of glory. The body rests in its grave as in its bed without pain until the resurrection. And at that resurrection of the body, there is then this consummation of all joy, body and soul reunited for immortality and eternal glory. And that's when you and I are going to live in earnest. This is probation. That's all this is. This is a brief moment, a blip, compared to eternity. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall always live. Death will have been eradicated, and him that had the power of death destroyed And never again will the glorified saints ever be threatened or anxious. There is blessing upon blessing. God's mercy is fresh, his grace abundant, and will enjoy an endless life in the unlimited benediction of the Lord himself. Hence, we conclude that the blessedness of heaven is worth waiting for. I don't know if you have to suffer affliction day in and day out. Some of our members do. But you know something? They have a bright future ahead, and that blessedness is worth waiting for. There is rest from our labors. There is peace at all times. There is pleasures forevermore. And any trouble we face in this life is worth enduring for the blessing of heaven. Paul said that when he wrote, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think of all the trouble that some people go through in this life. Better yet, think of all the trouble that some people outside the church go to to enjoy temporal treasure. They travel the world. They expend their energy. 
they spend their money. What evils and afflictions they will endure to obtain earthly prizes. Our hope is not in the fading trinkets offered by the world around us. We look forward to a better country, a holy and blessed heaven. That's the fourth way. And finally, the fifth way is that there in heaven, the Son of God will be fully and sincerely and clearly and unashamedly adored. The book of Revelation reveals to you and I the intense admiration and worship of Christ. We're told that those four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And this is what they sang. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Americans, Japanese, Mexicans, Taiwanese, you name it, people there from every country. And the exalted object of the worship of every single one of them is going to be none other than Christ the Lamb. And the doxology begun by the church will be joined by myriads of angels who will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And those attendants on the throne of God and the ministers that are there and the saints from every country will rejoice. And how you and I are going to exalt and celebrate the glory and merit of our Savior. Because he's worthy. He is worthy. When that innumerable company is finally assembled. Assembled around that heavenly throne. And we're singing those praises to the risen and exalted Christ then everything will be completed and the ultimate purpose of heaven will finally be achieved. God the Son will be fully glorified. So that's the purpose. God is highly praised and fully enjoyed there. Worship is perfected and deeply relished there. God's will is performed with delight there. And God's people are thoroughly blessed there and the Son of God is fully and sincerely adored there. And therefore, we who trust in Christ will be able to glorify and enjoy him forever. And all we can say is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. May that be an encouragement to every child of God this evening. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing it is to consider your heaven. And we recognize that it's based upon your goodness and it is created for your glory. And we look forward to that day when all of your children are gathered around your throne and we can worship the Lamb who was slain without hindrance, with fullness of joy. Until that time, we pray that you'll keep us sustain us, and help us to praise in the best way that we can. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.